Well, good morning, everyone. A couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Southern California, a sunny Southern California, but it was cold. And I, every January, I go there. We've got a couple of kids that live there, and I get together with a group of senior pastors for about four days where we uh, talk about a lot of different things. I mean, uh, we talk and we talk and we talk. We're all preachers, so we don't listen to each other. We just preach. We just talk. <laughs> and among the different things uh, we talked about were our joys and, uh, and our fears. I didn't say it at, at the time, but a couple of days ago, or a couple of days later, rather, it hit me that I actually have three fears going on right now in my life. And the first is that I fear that our world is unraveling getting more dangerous, and we no longer have the ability to pull it back. My second fear is that our country is also unraveling. I mean, think about what's going on right now, this current political climate. A week or so ago, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal by a guy named John Sullivan, who argued that the greater the crisis, the greater the uncertainty, uh, the more politics becomes like a carnival. Crazy. Vicious. It's what's going on right now on both sides of the aisle. But what that means at a deeper level, is that the, the, the craziness of our current political environment points to more fundamental problems that we could address, but I fear we won't. I fear we lack the moral will now. My third fear is that the church won't be ready. That we'll either be too anemic, too compromised, too comfortable on the one hand, or on the other, we'll be too harsh, too condemning, too judgmental, too withdrawn. Now this is why, precisely why, this series, this 10-week series in the New Testament book of Acts is so important. It's why we keep asking this question throughout this series, what made the first century church unstoppable? We're asking that because we want to give you hope. We want to help you become ready. So over the last four weeks, Alan and I have answered that question in several different ways. By looking at the first century church's certainty of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Confidence in the ascension, confidence in the supernatural indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And today, we come to another one, another answer to that question. But frankly, this one's a little different because we don't talk about it enough. And the reality is, um, we don't understand it as well. And it's this, the first century church's unwavering commitment to conversion You see, if Acts tells us anything, it tells us that the church of Jesus Christ is most potent when it's growing through conversions. Not ideology, 
Uh, not a set of doctrines, not practices, not, e not even programs that we conjure up, but the converting power of the Holy Spirit that takes us up and changes us, turns us around, and completely transforms us. It's called conversion. So today, as we come to Acts chapter 10, I want to look at a story within the story and talk about how conversion happens. Actually, I want to look at the science of it, if you will, or the theology of it. I want to look at what it looks like because I want to help us keep conversion central and robust rather than peripheral and, and weak. And I am convinced, and I've been praying to this end, that if you and I will take this into our heart, if we as a church will take this into our heart, it will go a long way towards making us unstoppable and making us ready for who knows what's coming. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Turn on your Bibles. Fasten your seatbelt. Grab a crash helmet. This is interesting stuff. It's page 1101 in the Bibles in, in front of you because we come to this dynamite, I mean dynamite conversion story of Cornelius. This Roman uh, soldier, a Gentile. It's the longest conversion story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. And it's really the story at the highest level of how the gospel finally sheds its Jewish clothing and becomes a worldwide movement for all who will believe, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of education. But I want to focus on the story within the story and look at Cornelius' conversion in terms of what it tells us about how conversion happens. So that we can be ready, so that we can be aware. Now, as you see, this is a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. And I'm going to jump in about halfway through. In the first half of this chapter, uh, Peter, the Jewish Christian leader, has a remarkable vision, falls into a trance. God shows up and is telling him that the gospel is now going on beyond the Jews to the whole world, and that the Jews should no longer regard anyone as unclean. Peter has this vision. And let's pick it up in the middle of verse 23. And we read in that first sentence of that new paragraph, the next day Peter started out uh, with the people had come for him and some of the brothers, that would be Jewish brothers from Joppa, went along. And the following day they arrived in Caesarea. Now this is about 30 miles along the coast of the Mediterranean. I've been to Caesarea a couple of times. It's an incredibly beautiful setting. And actually what's interesting is the first century ruins in Caesarea are extensive. And they're just fantastic. So Peter is now in Caesarea. Cornelius, the Roman, the Gentile, was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet. Now this is a Gentile responding to a Jew in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. Now taking, talking with him rather, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, now this is wild, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. Great way to start, isn't it? You know, I'm really not supposed to be here. It's uh, 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 against our law. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure 
or unclean. They're kind of feeling insulted, right? So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why in the world you sent for me? Cornelius, the Gentile, answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me, translate that angel, and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon, another Simon, the tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak, and what we have is a marvelous summary of the gospel. Peter says, I realize now how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts everyone from every nation who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. And here we go. Here he delineates the gospel, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So he starts with Jesus' life. Verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, Jesus wasn't a phantom, he wasn't a hallucination, we ate and drank with them. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what the gospel does. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now this is the story of the conversion of the Roman centurion, the soldier, a centurion means he was over about a hundred men, think a captain. This is the story of the conversion of this Gentile. Now you go back two chapters to chapter eight, and it's the prestigious Ethiopian minister of finance who converts to Christ. Then in the next chapter, the chapter before this, chapter 9, it's the Apostle Paul who converts. Here it's Cornelius, all sorts of conversions going down. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, our Lord says, unless you are converted, unless you turn, unless you change, you will not, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And that's what's going on in this section in the book of Acts. 
Now conversion in the Bible is a, is a complete turning, a, a complete change, a complete transformation. But it's not a replacing of who you are, it's a refacing of who you are. In other words, conversion means it's not your temperament that changes, or your background, or your family, or your culture. What changes is your heart, your mind, your motives, your, your values. And what I want to do is I want to help you see how this happens, because I want us to bring conversion central, and I want us to have a robust view of it, so that we will have hope, we will know what our mission is, and we will be ready. So four marks. These four marks are not unique to me. Number one, the early church understood that conversion is always initiated by God. Understood that it's always a, a, a divine thing. A beautiful thing because it's a God thing. Now in the previous chapter, chapter 9, we see this vividly in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. I mean, out of nowhere, Jesus appears to him and knocks him down, a metaphor. Humbles him. And Paul dramatically converts now here in chapter 10, the same thing is going on, it's just a little different. So go to verse 29, and look at this question again. Now Peter, remember, has already had a vision. So God is initiating in Peter's life. And Peter now is in Cornelius the Gentile's home, first time in his life he's ever been in the home of a Gentile. And he asks the question, now help me, why in the world did you send for me? And the answer Cornelius gives is, well, Peter, as a matter of fact, an angel appeared to me and commanded me to send for you. Now, this is wild. So Peter has a vision. Cornelius sees an angel. And what Luke is telling us is that God is initiating the conversion of the Gentiles, and it starts with God initiating the conversion of Cornelius. And so the point here is that conversion is always, always the world of, result of God seeking. God going first. God taking the initiative. Uh, uh, God showing up. God opening minds and hearts. Now today we talk, people talk about seeking God, uh, uh, people searching for God, and, and that's all legitimate, but the biblical reality that we have to understand is underneath that and prior to that is that God goes first. And God seeks us. I, I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis put it. He said, the mouse doesn't search for the cat, the cat searches for the mouse. Now what this means is if you want to find God, or you know someone who does want to find God, be encouraged, man, be encouraged, because that is a sign that God is already working. God has gone uh, before. And it means if you feel intimidated about sharing the gospel with somebody else in your life, and we all feel intimidated about that, then remember God is going before you. That's what's here in Acts chapter 10. God is always seeking. God is always ahead of you. God is always drawing people uh, to himself. So our confidence is in God, not our ability. Now this doesn't mean, let me say parenthetically, that we are robots. We are real people with real choices according to the Bible. 
nor does it mean that God sees our faith ahead of time and then responds to us because of something inside us. No. As Jonah says in the Old Testament, salvation is of the Lord. Here we see God initiating. So a robust view of conversion starts with confidence in the initiating power of God. That God is going to go first. That God is going to be in this. And when we get that and when we believe that, you know what that does? That makes the church humble. It makes the church fearless and unstoppable. And that's all over this section in the book of Acts. Let me go on. Mark number 2. And here we pick it up a little. We pick up the intensity. It's just fascinating. Uh, the second mark is uh, conversion. The second mark of biblical conversion, let me say it that way, is that it always, always liberates us from religion. Now, did you catch what the angel said to Cornelius? I mean, did you really catch it back in verses 29, 30, and 31? Uh, if you look at that, the angel appears and the angel saying, hey, hey, Cornelius, we've been watching you from heaven. We've had eyes on you. And frankly, as men go, you're, you're a good man. Man, you pray, you're generous, you're, you're, you're compassionate. And we've got really good news for you, Cornelius. God has heard your prayers. If you back up uh, to verse 2 on the front end of chapter 10, we discover that Cornelius was a devout and God-fearing man. He was legit. So the angel appears to Cornelius and said, Cornelius, you're a, you're a fine man. You're an outstanding religious man. But do you see what happens next? The angel doesn't go on and say, Cornelius, keep it up, and pretty soon you'll be in heaven. Uh, you're working things out pretty well. Uh, keep working out your salvation, and you're on your way. No, the angel says, go get Peter. Go get Peter. Why? Because while Cornelius is good, Cornelius is deeply religious, he needs to be converted. This is exactly the same conversation Jesus has in the Gospel of John with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was equally upright. He was a Jew. Uh, he was a Jewish leader. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night seeking Jesus searching for answers, looking to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus, oh man, Nicodemus, you're, you're close, keep it up, keep trying, uh, keep working, do this, do that. No, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now look at the interchange from John chapter 3. Interesting. Uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Uh, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus answers. Uh, Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, Jesus answered. 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now note that he concludes by focusing on the Spirit. I'm going to come back to the Spirit because of the emphasis on the Spirit in our chapter. But for right now, what you, I want to, uh, you to know is this interchange going on between Jesus and Nicodemus is profound because Nicodemus is about as religious as you get. And Jesus tells him religion isn't enough. Moralism isn't enough. And here in Acts chapter 10, the angel says the same thing to Cornelius that Jesus has just said to Nicodemus in the Gospels. And both of them are saying, or let me put it in terms of Cornelius. The angel is basically saying to Cornelius, Cornelius, you got to start from scratch. Now, for those of you that come from religious backgrounds like I do, this is not the way we think. We think, you know, if I've been a good Catholic, or in my case, a good Presbyterian, or a good Protestant, or a good Muslim, you know, a, a, a good Hindu, a, a good Blackhawks fan, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I haven't murdered, and the good in my wa- life outweighs the, the bad, then I'll be okay with God. No. What we're seeing here is that conversion isn't a call to religion, but rather conversion liberates us from religion. And here's the kicker. The more religious you think you are, the better you think you are, the harder this is. The more confusing this is. Now someone uh, pointed me uh, to a potent illustration of this in C.S. Lewis's um, little book, Great Divorce. The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is a parable. It's a parable about people who have died who are on a bus and uh, they're going to either heaven or hell. And there's a section in the great divorce where uh, one of these dead men is, is, uh, can't shake his religion. And I want you to listen to this conversation. Uh, so the guy that can't shake his religion says, I've done my best all my life, see. I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. Now, the representative from heaven who knew this guy when they were both alive on earth, but this guy's now in heaven, he's a representative of heaven, uh, comes to him and and, and speaks to him, and, and he says this, you know, it would be better for you not to go on like that now. What's going on? The ghost says, I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed like that. But I've got my rights, same as you, see? And then the representative from heaven 
speaks and says, oh no, it's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Be happy and come with me. But the ghost objects. Why do, you keep, why do you keep saying that? I'm only telling you the kind of person I was. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. And the representative from heaven says, then do. Ask at once. Ask for bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking. And nothing can be bought. And the conversation gets worse. The religious man gets harder. And finally, at the end, Lewis tells us, has the man, uh, the ghost, saying, tell them I'm not coming to heaven. I'd rather be damned than go along with you. Because I came here to get my rights. Not to go sniveling along on charity. I'm going to go home. That's what I'll do. Blast the whole pack of you. And so he left, still grumbling, but whimpering also a little as he picked his way over the sharp grasses. And he was damned eternally. You see, the Bible says the human problem is that we as humans put ourselves in the place of God. We want autonomy. That's supreme in America today, this notion of personal autonomy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it my way. I don't want the bleeding charity of Jesus Christ. And, and we express this autonomy in two very different ways. On the one hand, one way is we break all the rules. But on the other hand, the other way is we try to keep all the rules. The one makes you a criminal, the other makes you a legalist, just like this guy in the great divorce. But if the gospel is true, then conversion, we're talking about conversion, doesn't happen until you understand the difference between being religious and being born again, right? After all, Jesus said, unless you are converted, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Uh, so if you think you're okay, maybe because you've been a good mother. I had someone tell me that recently. Or because you've been ethical in the marketplace, or because you've been a good student, or a good coach, or a good teacher, or whatever. If you think you're okay, you're not. And if you know you're not, then you're on your way. That's why the angel tells Cornelius, this wonderfully devout, God-fearing man, to go get Peter. Huge difference between being religious and being converted. 
So conversion, first of all, is initiated by God. Uh, second, it, it liberates us uh, from religion. The third mark is that conversion here in Acts chapter 10 is the coming on, the coming on of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Now conversion, in other words, isn't a, a program. It's a coming on, the indwelling, the baptism, to use Paul's language later in the New Testament, uh, of the Holy Spirit. It's a complete transformation of the Holy Spirit. It's why Jesus in John chapter 3 told Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit, the coming on of the Spirit. Now what's interesting here is there are two results or two evidences in verse 46 of that coming on of the Spirit. One is speaking in tongues, the other is praising God. I want to reverse the order and, and share with you something fascinating that scholars have pointed out that, that I just love. And So let's start with praising God. And, and what they tell us is that praising God here is a psychological mark of conversion. Genuine, biblical, robust conversion. Now how is that? Well, because according to the Bible... You and I worship what we assign value to, ultimate value to. And what we, we value, we worship, we organize our lives around. Uh, to use Jesus' word, it's what we treasure. What we believe will bring us ultimate peace and happiness and satisfaction. So we give our lives to that. So if what you uh, value is money, then uh, you're going to organize your life around making money. And if something gets in the way, man, you are in a funk. And biblically, it's what you worship. Or if it's pleasing people, the same thing. Somebody rejects you, uh, man, you, you spiral uh, down. You see, the, uh, the Bible tells us that whatever, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever we worship, that controls us. What you worship will control you. Money will control you, friends will control you. That's why addictions are so lethal. And ultimately, the Bible also tells us that what you worship other than God will destroy you. Uh, there's a verse in the Old Testament, I'm reading through the Psalms right now on my own, and I came to Psalm 16, and I've been thinking about this verse for a couple of days. Look at it. Psalm 16, verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods or idols. In other words, do you know what the psalmist is saying? I mean, think about this. The psalmist is declaring that all the unhappiness in the world all the unhappiness in your life and my life and our marriages and our uh, marketplaces, whatever, is ultimately a worship disorder. It's running after the wrong gods. And by the way, this is why some people appear to come to Christ but don't stick with Christ. Because even though they may have made superficial changes, they haven't changed who or what they worship on the inside. And so it's still people or still money or, or, or control or whatever. But what we see in Acts chapter 10 is that the way we can know conversion is genuine is when there's praise and worship from the heart. And we change from the inside out. 
Because uh, conversion will never ever be genuine unless it changes what's ultimate and most central in our lives. No matter what you do, no matter the, the changes you make on the outside. Praising God here in verse 46 is evidence of deep, deep psychological, spiritual change brought on by the coming on of the Holy Spirit. Now let me go on to the second mark. The second mark here in verse 46 is speaking in, in tongues. As I uh, talked about this um, a couple of weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 2, I said there's a big debate in the church about just exactly what is speaking in tongues. Well, what does it look like? Is it still uh, vital for today, necessary for day, uh, today, uh, a good thing today? And all sorts of good godly people look at this question differently. So there's a debate in the church uh, over this. But the primary question we want to ask here is, is a question we often skip because we want to go to the question, what is this? And the question we need to ask us that's actually a primary or prior question is, why is this here? Why is speaking in tongues here in Acts chapter 10 as the gospel goes to the Gentiles? And that's the answer. Because when Peter shows up in Cornelius' house, he's doing something, I mean, it's hard for us to understand, but he's doing something he would have never ever done before. He is doing something no Jew would ever ever do, and that is eating and staying in the home, being in the home of a Gentile. By the way, some things never change. Today you go to Israel, uh, I, I've seen this repeatedly when I've been there. There are certain sects of Judaism today that won't make eye contact with you if you're a Gentile. We're talking 2,000 years down the road. So when these Gentiles speak in tongues... The lights go on for this Jew, for Peter. And Peter suddenly gets it. And he understands that the gospel is no longer just for Jews, but it's also uh, for Gentiles, for everyone. Everyone is equally a sinner. Everyone is equally uh, loved by God. And uh, the way Peter knows that is that the Gentiles speak in tongues just as the Jews did in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, we have the Jewish Pentecost. Here in Acts chapter 10, we have the Gentile Pentecost. And what I want you to know is there's a major, major sociological aspect to this. And what is that? Well, it is showing that the gospel that Jesus is for every race, every ethnicity, every gender, I guess there's only two, um, Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. All equal before God. So, and this is what we often miss in, in our conversations about the Holy Spirit. What we learn here, and we see repeatedly in 2 and now in 10, is one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the uh, main works of the Holy Spirit is to overcome racial barriers. To break down the walls. 
to help us understand we're all equal before God, to, to, to bring an end to racism. Finally, mark number four. The early church understood that conversion only, only, only comes through the preaching of the gospel. Now go back to verse 44. Let me ask you a question. Look at that verse. And, and as you're looking, the question is, when did the Holy Spirit come upon uh, these Gentiles? And the answer is when Peter was preaching. Now, another question you, you need to ask yourself is, why in the world didn't the Holy Spirit come upon the Gentiles four days earlier when the angel first appeared to Cornelius? I mean, he got an angel there. Why didn't the Holy Spirit descend there? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit doesn't descend, uh, doesn't come in the abstract. Or when we have certain feelings, whether they're religious or, or we ate too many tacos, I don't know. What we see here is the Holy Spirit comes in response to our belief in the gospel. There is an inextricable link between the experience of the Holy Spirit here and faith in the gospel. That's what verse 44 illustrates that. I don't want uh, you to miss it. Now, now, if you're a believer, we can take this a, a step further and, and we could argue that the, the deeper your belief in the gospel, potentially the deeper your experience of the Spirit. Now, we need to ask the question, what was, uh, what was Peter saying? We'll go back to verse 38. We have this beautiful, as I said a couple of minutes ago, beautiful summary of the gospel. In verse 38, Peter begins his presentation of the gospel by talking about Jesus' beautiful life. Jesus living this perfect life of, of, of incredible good deeds. Then in the very next verse, verse 39, he goes that it didn't end well. They hanged him on a tree. And the Old Testament tells us, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So what is going on is that this is a picture Peter is telling the Gentile listeners of the curse of God's judgment. Peter is saying that Jesus Christ took God's judgment. He was hung on a tree, took God's judgment for our sin on himself. Look at how Paul states this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul is speaking, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or tree. Same word translated tree uh, here. But then we ask ourselves a question, well, okay, how do we know that Jesus didn't um, just end up getting executed on a, on a tree, on the, on the cross, like a common criminal. What was different about Jesus? And Peter says, man, am I glad you asked that because in verses 40 and 41, he goes immediately to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says that Jesus was supernaturally raised from the dead. And then he says something uber important. He says, we know that because we ate and drank with them. So as I said, he, he was, in other words, he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a hallucination. And so I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but let me say it again. In, in other words, Peter is saying in the, in the first century world, we believe in Christianity not because it's useful, but because it's true. We ate and drank with them. Now, because it's true, it's useful. 
But today, way too many of us want to latch on to Jesus, come to Jesus, because we think it may be useful. Peter is saying the opposite. We ate and drank with him. This is, this is true. And so while Peter is preaching the gospel, the spirit of the living God descends on these Gentiles as Peter is announcing that Jesus Christ on the cross took on himself the curse of God so that anyone who believes might find the forgiveness of God. It's verse 43. And when Cornelius and his household heard the gospel, and believed the Spirit came upon him. That's amazing. Amazing. I go through this today because if we're going to be ready, if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be unstoppable, man, uh, conversion has to be central and it has to be biblically robust. We need to understand it's initiated by God that it separates us uh, from religion, that it's um, uh, featured by the Holy Spirit coming upon us. And it always comes through the preaching of the gospel. Now let me conclude with this quote. Look at what this author says. Somewhere along the way, the movement of, Christ, uh, movement of Jesus Christ became civilized as Christianity. We created a religion using the name of Jesus and convinced ourselves that God's optimal desire for our lives was to insulate us in a spiritual bubble where we risk nothing, sacrifice nothing, lose nothing, worry about nothing. Yet Jesus' death wasn't to free us from dying, but to free us from the fear of death. Jesus came to liberate us so that we could die up front and then live. Jesus Christ wants to take us to places where only dead men and women can go. And so if you are here this morning and you haven't come to Jesus and if God is speaking to you, God is impressing himself upon your heart and your mind, I want to invite you to turn to Jesus right now. He died that you might find forgiveness. It's the table. And if you've already done this, I just want to ask you, are you willing to die? Die each and every day of your life? Because if, if we're not, the church of Jesus Christ will never be ready. Let's pray. So Father, I want to pray for these children, these students, these men and women, and ask that you would give all of us, all of us, a greater grace that we might honor you and that we might turn to you, that Jesus Christ might be honored and exalted in our lives. Amen.